0: Alright, so last week um, we were in Matthew 16, and I told you we were taking last week and this week to look at these two times in the Gospels where the word church comes out of Jesus' mouth. You know, this is before the church has been formed. That, that doesn't happen until after the resurrection of Jesus, and actually until after he goes back up into heaven and he sends the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, and that's the birth of the church. And so these two times when he uses the word are interesting because he's talking about the church in advance of the church starting. And it just felt like a, a good place for us to come and say... The two times that Jesus uses the word church, you know, out of all the things that he could have said or focused on or talked about, what did he talk about with the church? And so I wanted to recap real quickly just a few of the verses we looked at last week in Matthew 16 before we turn over to Matthew 18 this week. Simon Peter, Jesus has asked them, who do people say I am and who do you think I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. So this truth about who Jesus is, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. That the only way that you know this spiritual truth about who Jesus is is because the Father has done a spiritual work to open your eyes so that you would see it, to open your mind so that you would know it, to work in your heart so that you would believe that this is true about Jesus. So Jesus says, And I tell you that you are Peter, which is the word rock, and on this rock, so we've got to play on words here. This was Petros and Petra. On this rock of who I am, and we dug into that last week to show that's what Jesus is referring to there, I will build my church. So there's the very first time that Jesus uses the word church in the Gospels. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And so last week we said that we've got this gospel truth As one of the foundations, like if we we think of Jesus using the word church twice and kind of laying these two huge bricks, like this foundation of this is what the church is. This is the the foundation that I'm going to build the church on. The first one last week was the gospel truth, and what we mean of that is who Jesus is. That when Peter declares, you are the Messiah, Like, you're the one that God has been promising from the very beginning until now. This king and rescuer and savior that God has anointed and chosen, and God will send him to save God's people, to rescue God's people, to fulfill all of God's promises to all of God's people. Everything God said throughout all of history centered in this one person. And Peter looks at Jesus and says, That's you. And Jesus says, You're right. That is who I am, and my Father has shown this to you. And on that truth, the truth of who I am, the truth that I have been sent by the Father to do everything that he's promised, I'll build my church on that truth, on the gospel truth of who Jesus is. And so then this week, in Matthew 18, we're going to see the other time that Jesus uses the word church, and we're going to see the other piece that's going to go over here, this other brick foundation. I've put together, just so you know, as we get ready to pray and read together, There's three straight sections here in Matthew 18 that I really believe go together. The word church is in the middle of the three, so kind of sandwiched in these three sections. And it means that we're going to cover a lot here in just a minute. Like we could study each of these sections by themselves for a whole week by themselves. And so I've had a little bit of anxiety over there's so much for us to see. There's so much that God has to say to us, and it's so relevant to who we are as a church and who He's calling us to be. That I've had this anxiety over, like, are we going to say, every, am I going to say everything? Are we going to see everything? Are we going to get all these truths that we need to get? And so I've just been praying, first of all, and I'm going to ask you when I pray in just a minute, pray this with me that God, by His Spirit, would have us focus on the things that He wants us to see today. It'll make it real clear, yeah, let's talk about that stuff. And if there's more than what we can say today, that that we'll know to leave some of it alone. And if we need to come back next week and spend a second week on this passage, because, listen, it is so good for your personal life and mine, for us as a church, for every relationship that you will ever have in your entire life to see what Jesus says in these three sections. That I don't want us to shortchange it, but I also don't want you to feel like you're getting bludgeoned for like an hour and a half today. So just pray with me that we'll know what to say today know what to leave for next week, know if we need to come next week, and we're going to ask God to teach us by His Spirit exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 16, that God would reveal things that that we wouldn't see if He doesn't do a spiritual work. Uh, So will you pray that with me right now? Father, please teach us by Your Spirit, from Your Word, as only You can. Please open our eyes to see the truth of who You are, because of what you are showing us in the Bible right now. Soften our hearts, Father, to believe what you teach, to receive it and to love it, to trust you. And we ask that you would work in us during this time and that you would do a spiritual work to be changing us and making us into the type of people that you are calling us to be by what you reveal and teach From this section of Matthew 18, make us your church. Make us into the type of church that Jesus has in mind when he talks about his church. We cannot do this, Father. We cannot build this. We do not have the spiritual power or the spiritual resources or the spiritual ability. It is you and you alone. And so we come to you in the name of Jesus, believing that you promised to give everything that we need because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And so we ask you, pour out your Spirit to build your church for your purposes right now in this time. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, if you'll pick up with me here in Matthew 18, we're going to start in verse 12 um, and read these three sections I was talking about. And so this is Jesus talking here, Matthew 18, starting in verse 12, and he says, oh, sorry, and as I read, I know most of you know this, but you know, maybe you're here for the first time this week, primary question that I want you to be listening for the Spirit to pop in answers into your mind What's this teach us about God? That this is first and foremost about God. That, that We saw it, right? The truth of who Jesus is is the foundation for the church. That if that's the foundation for the church, we have to know who he is. We have to know the truth about him to know how the church should look, how it should be built on him. And so first question I want you to be asking, what's this teach us about God? And then secondarily, if that's true about God, what's he saying to us? What's he teaching us about us if we aren't with him, like if we are far from him and aren't living a way that looks like him? And what's he teaching us about us when we're in relationship with him, what our lives will look like? So what's this teach us about God? And then what's God saying to us? And I'm going to ask you, you know, if it's new week for you, like you're just dropping in this week, to answer that in just a minute, that, that God will be speaking to all of us from his word by his spirit this morning. So as I read, what's this teach us about God? All right, Jesus talking here. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. This is the second section now. Jesus goes on. If your brother or sister sins... "'Go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. "'If they listen to you, you have won them over. "'But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, "'so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. "'If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church.'" So here's the second time that Jesus mentions church. "'And if they refuse to listen even to the church, "'treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector.'" Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked. And Peter's basically saying, Lord, let me make sure I'm clear on what you're saying right here. Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him ten thousand bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I'll pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I'll pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In his anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Not exactly Jesus' softest ending there, is it? What's that teach us about God? Any of the three sections there, what jumps out to you? Pursues, good. God, well, if I can get it right. There we go. Pursues, and that could be the in us when we wander away. You see that right here. The one sheep wanders off. And, that, and it's always, always in all these parables, Jesus tells the guy that owns the sheep is always God, that man. And the sheep, always us, just across the board. By the way, Jesus tells the same parable again in Luke, and I've attached it on down here at the bottom And since we're already talking about it. He teaches a little bit more here And I just thought it was worth hearing like the expanded version real quickly if you want to read this with me. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. What do you all think about that last sentence right there? Do you, do you believe that? That God rejoices more when one person who's been wandering away in sin repents and comes back to him than he does over 99 righteous people who do not, do not need to repent. That there's more rejoicing over repentance than there is over righteousness in heaven. How does that feel to you? All of them together? As one? Because... Here's the deal. I'll just be honest with you, and I think this is exactly what you're getting at. Religiously, that feels wrong to me. <laughs> and so if you think that, just that's okay. Like the way that I think I've, I've just grown up to believe, I don't know if I've been taught this or if it's just natural in me and it's the way that I process everything, but what I think is God wants righteousness. He wants you to be a good little boy or girl, <laughs> right? But that's the goal. And so I I can't imagine, like, how could he be more excited over this one sinner who repents of sinning than he is over 99 people living the right way? Like, how can repentance matter more to God than righteousness? Does anybody else feel that way at all? Are you all just sitting here, like, pretending that it doesn't feel that way to you? All right, here's the deal. Okay, if that doesn't feel that way to you, because I'm telling you that that's like, in my mind what I think. It doesn't feel that way to me, but if it doesn't feel that way to you, it's because you know you're the one, and that's a really good thing. You know when this bothers you? When you think you're the 99 righteous. And here's the deal. None of you are. (laughs) right? None of us. What Jesus says, yeah, there's more rejoicing over this one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous who don't need to repent. That's because there aren't 99 righteous who don't need to repent in the whole world. And when he tells this in Luke, by the way, he's talking to the Pharisees who are really mad that he's spending all his time with sinners and tax collectors. They don't understand why he would do that. Instead of focusing on them, the really good people. And Jesus is like, the reason that I spend my time with sinners is because there's nobody else to spend time with. There aren't good people for me to hang out with. I either hang out with sinners who look like sinners and are maybe willing to admit it because it's so obvious, or I hang out with sinners like you religious Pharisees who pretend that you aren't sinners, and that means you aren't willing to admit it, and you aren't willing to repent, and there's no rejoicing over your fake external self-righteousness where you're trusting in yourself instead of trusting in God. Do you see that here? And so this part that God pursues us is such good news because we all need to be pursued. We've all wandered off. Like we've all wandered away from trusting God completely instead of trusting ourselves. And either we just go off and live our life our way. And we're like, you know, I'm not going to think about God. I know he said all this stuff was wrong, but I'm just going to do what I want. It doesn't matter what he says. That's one way that we wander off. Or we wander off by saying, you know what? I don't need God to make me good. I'll make me good. I can keep the rules. I can look nice and pretty and polished. I can impress everybody else. I can do all these good religious things to make myself good enough. That's wandering away from God just as much as the most explicit, out-there sins that you can think of. Because in, in both cases, your heart's not turned to him in faith. Your heart's either turned to this is what I want to do, so I'm going to do it, or this is what I can do for myself, and I'll do it for myself. Do you see that? But in both cases, God is pursuing you. He's pursuing you this morning in his word saying, this is who you really are. This is what your heart's really like. And this is who I really am. And I'm after you this morning. I'm after you to shatter all of your self-reliance and your self-righteousness and your self-effort and come and find life in Jesus. Die to yourself and be immersed in Jesus or I'm coming to you this morning in all your rebellion and all the ways that you've turned your back on me and, and I'm chasing you down and I'm going to find you. If you'll just repent and turn back to me, there's rejoicing. There's not condemnation for all the things you've done wrong. There's rejoicing for the fact that you're coming back to me now. And really what you would say is that, that righteousness in and of itself isn't the goal. That's why they don't rejoice over that. That God is the goal this relationship with God, that there will be righteousness. It'll be the righteousness of Jesus given to you. It'll be you being one with Jesus. And you're righteous now both because of what he's done for you and what he does in you and through you by his Spirit, but all of it in union with him, in relationship with him, nothing independent over him. And so the reason that that type of righteousness can't be rejoiced over is because it's not righteousness in Jesus. It's not dependence on Jesus. It's not faith in Jesus. And this one sinner who repents and knows, hey, I don't have what I need. I'll turn and come back to Jesus and find it in him. That is the goal. And that is who we all are, whether we see it or not. And so, yeah, God pursues us when we wander away. And that's really the main thought in that first section there, that that's how God treats his people when we wander away. What other truths about God do you see in any of the three sections? God rejoices over us. It's one of the most backwards things to our human mind in the whole gospel that when you repent, in other words, you say, yes, I've been wrong, here's what I've done wrong, I'm going to come back to you now, and I'm admitting it, God, that at that moment what comes is, is not punishment or condemnation for what you did wrong, but rather rejoicing that you're coming back to him. That, you know, we think about, humanly speaking, in a court of law, if you were guilty of something and you went in and confessed, confession is saying, yes, I'm guilty. That makes you guilty in the eyes of the court. And now here comes your punishment. And with God, you come and you confess and you say, yeah, I'm guilty. And I repent and I turn to you. Here's what comes now wiping out of the punishment, (laughs) rejoicing and not condemnation. Right? Joy from the Father, relationship with the Father, not punishment. And then just the idea that this perfect and holy and sinless God would rejoice over people like us. Like, what must his love be? That when you come and say, here's how much I've blown it, here's how terrible, here's how far short of you I fall, he says, yeah, but I love you anyway. I love you enough to rejoice about the fact that you, like in all your weakness and all your brokenness and all your sin and all your failure and all your mistakes, that you've come back to me. This is what I wanted. I wanted you to come back to me. I I never was rejoicing over how many good things you could offer or how many good things you could do or how righteous you were. That wasn't what I was rejoicing over. I was rejoicing over the fact that I love you and I want you to love me and I'm calling you back to that relationship. And now you've come back, and so I rejoice. I mean, it's God basically saying, I never needed you to offer me anything, (laughs) right? He already has everything he needs. He needs nothing from you. He just loves you. And so when you come to him, he rejoices because he wants you. That is the depth of his love for us. What else do you see about God? God doesn't desire that anyone should perish. We get that exact statement later in the New Testament, that he's patient, waiting for people to come to repentance, not desiring that anyone should perish. And he's pursuing those who've wandered away, just that whatever moment, it's like, here you are wandering off, running as fast as you can, and he's always right here. Like he's never like, fine, just let him go. Like, he's always right here, and you don't see him. You don't feel like he's closed. Like, everything you're doing, you fuck, like there's this huge, just distance between you and God, but that's because you're running away, and the moment that you stop and turn back, he's there. Like you turn back in faith and repentance. You turn back and you say, mercy is my only hope. Is there mercy here for me? And he's there. He says, yes, there's there's mercy after mercy after mercy for you. This is what I want if you'll turn to me. This type of pursuit and restoration, this is the heart of God in the gospel. Those who perish don't perish because God wasn't willing to save them. They perished because they wouldn't turn back to him in repentance. What else? We have received grace upon grace, and we should offer grace upon grace. We That's that third section there when Jesus tells the story about the king and his servant. And we'll get to that here in a minute. Uh, Anybody else want to add one more right now? (laughs) We could really unpack that in like 12 directions. I'm going to write it down pretty much the way you said it, and then we're going to come back to this. um, God... Needs and, and wants us to forgive others so we can understand what it means to be forgiven. All right, I know there's a lot more we can unpack. We may do some of it over the next 20 minutes or so. We may do some of it next week. But I wanted to walk through something with you, just the flow of these three sections. You know, so we started in this, the one sheep wanders off, and the man pursues it to go find it, this one that, that he's not willing. He's not willing to look at the 99 and say, well, that's good enough. Like His heart is such that he wants this one that has wandered off. And to see, and I think, I think we've really hit it so far in all the truths you shared, that this is God's heart for you. Like this is God's love for you. This is God's pursuit of you. And, and he looks, and the think of the sheep wandering off is the sheep doing the wrong thing, right? That God looks at you, and in the, the worst things you have done, like the, the very wrongest things you have done in those things, his heart is, I want you. Like, not because of your performance, not because of your behavior, not because you're good enough. Like, the time when he pursues this sheep is when this sheep is going the wrong way and doing the wrong thing. He's after you then. His love covers you then. You better believe his love always covers you. It's not based on what you've done or what you've gotten right. His love for you is based on his love for you. Right? He loves you because he loves you. He loves you because that's who he is. That's why you can trust it, that's why it's unchanging. That's why it endures forever because it's coming from him and you haven't earned it and you haven't checked into it and you you haven't stirred it up inside of him with how impressive and good you are. Which should humble you and me, religious people, that God doesn't love you because of what you've done. You haven't been good enough. You aren't one of the 99 righteous people. That's not why he loves you. It should humble you and then it should give you great, great hope and joy and security for the exact same reason, because it's not based on what you've done. It's not based on you. It's not going anywhere when you don't get it right, when you don't measure up, when you aren't good enough. He still loves you, and he's still coming after you, and his heart is still for you. So that's that first section of who God is. Then he immediately follows up, Jesus does, with now. Okay, and and by the way, notice, That's the way my father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. So his his talk here is, okay, we've got a father, and then we've got this family of children, which that would be you and me, right? That he's pursuing us in our sin. And the way the father relates to us in our sin is that he pursues us, and he loves us, and he wants our relationship to be restored with him, and he rejoices when that's the case. Now Jesus shifts in the family and says, okay, now children, brothers and sisters, and all of you all who are children of this type of father, what do, if that's who your father is, what's that mean for you? What type of family is this church supposed to be? Do you see how the first section connects to the second one? If your brother or sister sins, what should you do? What's it say in verse 15? Go, which is another word for pursue them. But What has the Father done? He pursued you in your sin. So now what do you do? You pursue each other. You don't write them off. You don't go talk to somebody else about it. You don't offer it as a gossip prayer request in your small group. You go to this person direct. You go find them. And you don't wait for them to come back. Right? They're wandering off in their sin right now. What do you do? You go to them. And you point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen, you've won them over. If they listen, here comes repentance and reconciliation of a relationship, and there's rejoicing in heaven, just like we saw in the earlier section. He said, This is what the the church is supposed to look like. The the relationships within the church are supposed to look like your relationship with your father. That the way that God has treated you in the gospel is the way that we are supposed to treat each other in the church. This is what God wants for his family. And that it is so serious that if, if it doesn't work the first time, guess what? You still don't get to write them off. You still don't get to be done with them. You still don't get to amputate and move on. You still don't get to say, well, I did what I needed to do. He Okay, well, then take a couple more people with you and see if you can reach them now. And if that doesn't work, guess what? You're still not done. Like We're still not done trying to reconcile. If that doesn't work, what do we do? Bring it to the whole church. He said, get everybody involved in the hope of reconciliation. And if that doesn't work, this last section right here, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I think we misunderstand this a lot of times, partly because we just read verses 15 through 17 right here, and we don't connect it to what came immediately before, that God's pursuing this lost sheep and wants to find this lost sheep, and everything he wants is to bring that lost sheep back. And so usually often, when you hear verses 15 through 17 read, we talk about it in the context of, and I'm going to put it in quotes, church discipline. Have you ever heard it that way? We're like, okay, this, these are the steps you take, and if that doesn't work, you kick somebody out. And there is a place for church discipline, right? We see it in 1 Corinthians 5 as an example. But it's always a place of, hey, we have an unrepentant sinner who is so hardened that, that we've gone to him one-on-one, and they won't respond. And we've gone to them, two or three of us together, like in a small group, and they won't respond. And we've gone to them as a church, and they won't respond. What's the only hope now? Maybe this is drastic enough to get their attention. Like it's always, yes, there's a place for church discipline, but the intention is always to bring about repentance, to bring about reconciliation, to bring about restoration. We see that because of the context that Jesus sets us in with what he says right before. And so the treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector, is, okay, you're not responding like to anybody speaking into your life. You're not even responding to your church speaking in your life. Maybe that means you're not a believer. Right? Like If there's no conviction in you after all these steps, maybe you're still lost. And so then how do you treat a pagan or a tax collector? Like, if we understand what Jesus says to us, if somebody's not a believer, not following Jesus, Do we never speak to them again and have nothing to do with them ever again? Is that what we do with lost? Is that what we should do with lost people in the world? No. What he's saying is, hey, back up to square one now. This person needs the gospel from the beginning. This person is not a disciple. Go and make disciples. You've got to treat them that way right now. they're not responding to the gospel. They're not responding to the church. They're not responding to the spirit in the way that a believer would. Don't write them off. Just start treating them like an unbeliever. And an unbeliever, you want to reach them with the gospel. This isn't severing the relationship. It's just redefining the relationship. Hey, so far, I have been interacting with you under the assumption that you're a believer because you say you are. Everything I can see says you're not. So now I'm going to have to interact with you like you're not. But guess what? These same things are God's pursuing you right now in your lostness. God's pursuing you in your sin. This truth of the gospel is still true for you right now. Let's just back up and start over again and pray for the spirit to open your eyes and soften your heart so that you believe it now. Like it's church discipline for the point of restoring someone to a real relationship with God if it hasn't been real so far. You know, maybe we settled for, yeah, I made a decision 20 years ago, but I didn't immerse myself in Jesus. It was just a decision and I didn't become a disciple and I haven't been following him. And so over time, we realize, hey, there's no real fruit. There's no real spiritual fruit. Well, what do we do? We back up and say, okay, maybe that wasn't real faith yet. But that doesn't mean it's too late. That doesn't mean you're gone. That doesn't mean God writes you off. That means God's pursuing you right now. Do you see that? And just in case you think that I'm letting the first few verses there about the sheep bleed too much into this second section, look at what Peter, after Jesus teaches that part, Look at how Peter responds. And you tell me, how did Peter understand Jesus' middle section there? Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? In other words, Peter heard what Jesus just said, and Peter was like, Jesus is teaching about forgiveness. He's not teaching specifically about excommunication. He's not teaching about cutting people off. He's telling me how drastic I need to be in forgiving people, and it's way more than I expected, because the Jewish law said you forgive somebody three times. And so Peter gets it. Hey, Peter gets this. Jesus is raising the bar, right? And Peter's mind, okay, it was three. I'm going to double. I'll do twice as much, and I'll add another one for good measure. And I think you get a little bit of Peter being like, hey, Jesus, are you impressed? Like I listened, and I'm going way above what everybody else would do. How about seven? <laughs> and Jesus is like, I'm not impressed at all. <laughs> he's like, no, you still don't get. Well, he's like, You're starting to. You get the fact that I'm saying what you've been doing is not enough. You just don't get how much is not enough. <laughs> like you don't get just how much you are that one sheep. <laughs> and he's like, I tell you not seven, but 77. Some translations say 70 times seven and obviously, he's saying, you can't count. Like, you, you can't put a number on this. I'm not talking about the number of times you should forgive. I'm talking about the fact that you should have a heart of forgiveness. You should be a forgiving person. It's who you should be, not just what you should do. So you don't have to count it. And then he tells this story. And this is where it really gets challenging for us. Where he says, there's a the king who wanted to settle accounts. He brings in this man that owes him here it says 10,000 bags of gold. Um, the word there is talent, and I'm going to write it over here for just a second. The king forgives him, everything. And then down here, he comes back out, and he's got a servant who owes him 100 silver coins. The word there is denarius. And of course, you know, these words don't, they don't have a monetary value to us in English. And so that's why bags of gold and silver coins, that's helpful. But it's denarius or denarius. So a a denarius, this is what a worker would get, like just a basic worker anywhere in in that society for one day of work. That's what one of these silver coins is. And so I was just thinking, in our day, let's take $15 an hour and an eight-hour workday. All right, a denarius today. Uh oh. Sorry about that. Denarius would be about hundred twenty dollars. Right? That's what it's worth. One day worth of work, hundred twenty dollars, and he owes him hundred. Right. Didn't know you were coming from math class today, did you? So this second servant owes about twelve thousand dollars. That's not, that's not a small amount, and I think one of the things to see right here is Jesus is saying, hey, there's people who've done stuff to you, who owe you stuff, who have sinned against you, and I'm not dismissing it. I'm not minimizing it. I'm not saying it's nothing. It is something. Like I'm not, When I tell you to forgive somebody, I'm not saying you have to look at it and say, that's no big deal. It's a big deal. 100 days worth of work. It is something. It is a debt to me. It has hurt me. It has caused pain. And Jesus acknowledges that right here. All right, so $12,000. But we go back up here now to what this first servant owed the king. This talent, one talent, is 6,000 denarii. One. So the denarius was $120, right? He owes 6000 for one talent. That's $720,000. But then he owes 10000 of those. So let's try to roll these on here. One, two, three, four more of those guys. We've got to move our commas now. It just gets real messy when you realize how much you owe Jesus. All right, one, two, three. All right, that's what I thought. $7.2 billion that's what the guy owes the king how's this look now <laughs> All right, you owe me 12000 I owe the king $7.2 billion in today's numbers and the king's willing to forgive this make sure you see that about your king like you owe enough to shut down the economy of a small nation and he says, I'll forgive it all. I'll just wipe it away. It's gone. Now, when he forgives it, it doesn't exactly go away in one sense. right? Somebody has to pay it. But when he forgives it, who pays it? The king, right? He's out $7.2 billion, and he's still going to be out $7.2 billion. So what he's really saying is, instead of you having to pay what you owe, I'll pay what you owe. I will absorb your debt. I will take it on myself, and I will count it as my own. And you're off the hook. Not for nothing, not for free, not because he minimizes how much you owe, but because he's willing to say, I know how much you owe, and I'll pay it. Like, make sure you see that's what the king is doing right there. But this guy then leaves, finds the guy who owes him $12,000, and he's like, I'm not forgiven. that it's too big of a deal to me. Why? I feel like this is the biggest thing that God showed me this week. In this story, this first guy, he's got two comments that really stand out to me. First of all, when the king calls him in and says, hey, you owe, when he begs the king, look what he says, be patient with me and I will pay back everything. $7.2 billion earning a denarius a day. I I did the math here. That takes 60 million days of work to earn $7.2 billion for a guy in his position. Now, just in case that doesn't mean anything to you, that's 164,383 years. When's he paying back? Never. And so either, one of two things is going on with the guy right here. Either he still thinks, so highly of himself that he really thinks I can pay it back, or he is so out of touch with what his debt really is that in his mind it's way, way less than it actually is. And do you see those are the same thing? Either a high view of himself or a low view of his sin. But in either case, this is a resp- I'll pay back everything, is a response of self-righteousness. Like He doesn't say, have mercy on me, forgive me, I can't do it, I can't handle it, it's too much. He says, I'll pay you back. And so either he really believes he's able to, which means he's got a crazy view of himself and a crazy view of his debt, or he just can't face the fact, he cannot handle the fact that he can't do it, and so he's still pretending that he can. Like pretending with everybody else and pretending with himself and not admitting admitting how bankrupt and how needy he really is. That's the first sentence I wanted you to see. And here's the other one, when he goes to his fellow servant, pay back what you owe me. Why is he so angry about $12,000 in comparison to $7.2 billion? Because the $12,000 is owed to him, right? What are the sins that you get the maddest about, honestly? the ones that are done to you. I know it because it's that way with me, and I know your heart's like mine. Somebody can commit $12,000 worth of sin against you, and you will rant and rave and rail, and you will be bitter and angry, and you will call it justice, right? Like something will well up inside you. It's like, my sense of justice demands that this be dealt with the right way. And then over here is $7.2 billion worth of sin, and you're not nearly as angry about that. Why? Because that's your sin it wasn't done to you, this is what you did. And So the second piece we see is self-centeredness. He is way more concerned about the debt that's owed him than he is about the debt that was owed to the king. Because right? to him, he's the center of his unit, but the stuff that's done to him is the biggest deal. The stuff that's done to him matters more than what's done to anybody else or even the stuff that he's done to somebody else. It deserves to be treated differently. And so when we get to the end here, and the whole point Jesus makes is, hey, if you've been forgiven by your king, you've got to be forgiving like your king. Like if you have really encountered mercy and forgiveness in a way that changes your life, mercy and forgiveness will flow out of you. And that's why Jesus' warning here is so, so harsh at the end where he's like, hey, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Because he's saying, if you never get to the place where you forgive your brother and sister from your heart, that's evidence that you've never really expe- accepted forgiveness. That you've never really encountered it in your heart and been changed by it. Now, this first guy, the king is willing to forgive him. Right? He, he says, Forgive the whole debt. But the first guy is still working from a place of self righteousness where, in his mind, I wasn't asking for, I didn't really need forgiveness. I was going to find a way to do it on my own. Like he hadn't come broken and humble and desperate and needy where he knows that mercy and forgiveness are his only hope. So when he encounters somebody else who needs mercy and forgiveness, he's like, I expect you to be like me. Figure it out on your own. And the lie that he tells himself about himself and his own sin causes him to not look like his king when he deals with other people who are in debt. And then also because he still thinks he's the center of the universe. It hasn't crossed his mind yet. The king is more important than I am. He's the king, and what I owe him is way worse than what anybody else owes me because he's still the center of the universe. He has this inflated view of what everybody else owes him, and so their sin against him is too big for him to let go. It's too big for him to forgive it. It seems too big because his view of himself is too big, and so sin against him is too big. Do you see that here? And so this morning, I think, as we examine our hearts, one of the things that God's saying is when you struggle with forgiveness... And God said, when you struggle to forgive the way that he forgives us, look closely for these two roots. Look for self-righteousness in yourself that looks like this a lot of times. I, I would never do what they did. I, just, I can't even understand how they could do that. I would never do that. Let me help you this morning. Yes, you would. Yes, you would. A hundred times over in a hundred different ways. You would. But in our self-righteousness, we don't identify, so we can't have compassion and we can't forgive and we can't be merciful. Or then secondly, this self-centeredness. Do you treat sins against you as different than all other sins? Are the sins against Here's the biggest way to ask. When the sin is against you, do you get more angry about it than you do about the same sins against anybody else? I mean, that's a hard one, because like, if you do something to my kids wrong, I'm going to get more angry than if you do something to somebody else's kids, even like my best friend's kids. Like, I'll, I'll probably get angry about that, but I'll be more angry, and you may say, well, it's because I love my kids. No, it's because they're your kids, and there's still a root of self-centeredness in you. They're more important because they're yours, <laughs> and that, listen, this is hard. But it's what's going on here. Pay back what you owe me. This is about me. You know, if, if if it was against anybody else, we can let that. We can let it go if you owe it to the king, because I'm okay with that. But if you owe it to me, we can't let that go. It's me. I mean, Jesus is digging deep in our hearts right here, and all of this is relevant to the church because we're a whole bunch of sinners in relationship with each other. And this is gonna happen a lot up here, right, where we get sideways with each other. It's gonna happen among our elders. It's going to. And either we'll handle it in a gospel way where we go to one another and we talk through it with grace and we go to one another with the intention of forgiving each other. That's the other thing to see about this section, that the two ways that we tend to disobey, disobey Jesus' command here to the church, some of us we don't ever go. And we're just like, no, I'm not dealing with that. I'm not addressing that. I'm not talking to them about that. And probably we're just going to write them off. Be like, Our relationship's going to change from now on because I don't want to deal with this thing, and now it's always going to be between us, and we'll just live at a distance. That's one way we disobey. Others of us are like, hey, he gave me the green light to go tell these people what's wrong with them. <laughs> no, he didn't. He gave you the green light to go and restore these people. He gave you the green light to go and call them to repentance and restoration and reckon. Not to go to get your pound of flesh, but to go to give 10,000 pounds of grace. That's how he called you to go. He did call you to go. The other thing, I threw this one down here at the bottom. I know I'm scrolling fast. In Matthew 5, Jesus talks about a similar sort of thing. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. And the reason I wanted to include it this morning is because where we are today in Matthew 18, he says, hey, if there's something wrong with them, you go tell them. And then he says, if there's something wrong with you, like they've got, you've sinned against them and they've got something against you, you go and be reconciled to them. And I just wanted to point out that in Jesus' world, reconciliation Is always your responsibility. Always. If they sin against you, it's your responsibility to go and try to make it right. If you sin against them, it's your responsibility to go and make it right. And your first reaction, what about them? That's because you're self centered. (laughs) And you want them to come to you. Yeah, it's their responsibility too. But if they don't come to you, guess what? That's one of the sins that you need to go and try to bring them back to repentance about. But Jesus is just, he's just like, look you're just never off the hook when it comes to reconciliation because that is who he is. Like That's the gospel truth of who he is, that we're always to go, that we go humbly and apologize when we've been wrong, and we go humbly and forgive when we've been wronged, always. It's also one of the reasons I was talking about the elders a minute ago when I got onto that, that I really believe that it's biblical for us to have multiple elders, like instead of just this one person who leads, because we're all going to be wrong sometimes. And we need other people who are there to speak into our life, like to come and pursue us and point it out, and to say, "Yeah, we need to talk about this." We're all going to have blind spots. To live this out, we have to be a church. And I know the pandemic has been weird, and we had a lot of community groups that went to Zoom for a while, and and haven't met, and and you know we're we're still getting ramped back up. But over the next few months, as we're rolling into the fall and schools back into normal schedule. We've got to roll out more community groups, more home Bible studies, more home churches where we can be in this type of relationship with each other, where you can have people in this church family, not that you just sit in here in this big crowd and we we see each other's faces once a week, but that we're really involved in each other's lives where we know these things, where you can't hide these things, where people can come to us and we can go to them and say, hey, I see this going on with you right now. Let's talk about it. Or where we go to the whole community group and say, hey, we've been trying to talk through this and we can't get on the same page. Can the rest of you all help us talk through this? Help us work toward reconciliation. You know, that, that, would be the go- that, that we would live this out just across the board with our elders, with our staff, with our community groups, with our, in our relationships with each other. And then that it would bleed over from this like, into our family and into our neighborhoods. That This is the way that we would live out the gospel. Because this second big piece up here at the top, gospel truth. The other piece I think we're seeing is gospel relationships. Jesus is saying, in one sense, it's not enough just to know who he is. That first servant knew that the king had forgiven him $7.2 billion. Right? He knew it. But it didn't change who he was or how he interacted with other people. And so I think the last thing that we do is we realize that Jesus didn't give us two foundations for the church. These are the same thing. If you ever get gospel truth, If you know who Jesus is and how he has forgiven you and how he has pursued you and how he loves you, you'll start to have gospel relationships. And if you don't ever have gospel relationships where you forgive and pursue and love the way that Jesus does, where you live this out in the body with one another, then we've got to be real, real concerned of have we actually gotten the gospel truth yet? Have we really encountered it in a way that changes who we are? And then also flip that around for just a minute because some of us want to go then and say, okay, I'll have these relationships and i love people and anything goes and everything's acceptable and we just have to accept people no matter what. You can only have gospel relationships when they're really and truly built on gospel truth. And a huge part of the gospel truth is you owe a debt to your king that you cannot pay. Anything doesn't go. Everything's not okay. We're not okay. And to sit around and pretend like we are And to enable each other to live out self-righteousness and this facade of hypocrisy, that's not a gospel relationship. A gospel relationship is, no, I'm not okay, but Jesus is. No, you're not okay, but Jesus is. Let's go to him together. That the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness and the reconciliation we can offer to each other in this relationship is because of the gospel truth of who Jesus is and what he has done. And then one more practical piece, and I promise I'll stop and we can sing and we can thank God for this. As I was thinking about this, again, the $12,000, and I tried to say God's not minimizing what's been done to you. I know that some of you have been sinned against in ways that have really hurt you. And I'm not saying it's okay. And, I mean, you can flash in your mind whatever you want. There could be types of abuse that you want to think about or sins against your kids that you just look at and you're like, That's not small, and that's not okay, and I don't know how to forgive that. Nobody's minimizing that. God is not saying, treat that like it's okay. God is saying, trust me to deal with that. Like, either that sin is going to be punished exactly the way it needs to be punished in Jesus, and, and your sense that the real sense of justice within you will know for all eternity that God did not minimize what was done to you. That he poured out his wrath on Jesus for that sin and said, this is how seriously I take it and this is how much I'm going to take care of you. What I'm saying is if the person who has sinned against you is a believer, then their sin will be placed on Jesus and it will be punished for all eternity with the wrath of God being poured out the way it should have been. But it's going to be separated for them. You can't hate them. Or, if they're not a believer, it's also going to be punished for all eternity, just not at the cross. It'll be punished for all eternity in their separation from God and their experience of His wrath and punishment in hell. But either way, God's not minimizing what's been done to you. But in a real way, He's not asking you to pay that debt. He's saying, I'll pay it for you so you can go live in that payment and forgive them for things you could never forgive them for. So don't hear me trying to minimize anything that you've got to forgive. I know some of it's too big for you. I know some of it's too hard for you. I know you can't let it go. But Jesus can. And he lives in you, and that's what he's done for you. And then there is a difference between these two things. Forgiveness and reconciliation. I had a good reminder of that just this week. forgiveness is a one-way street you choose to forgive they don't have to repent they don't have to say they're sorry they don't have to admit what they've done wrong this this first servant does not repent he's I'll pay it back he's still living by the law he's not asking for mercy he's not asking forgiveness and the king gives it anyway but then he does not this is an important part this is a two-way street Right? It takes, reconciliation takes two people. That, that first servant, his heart doesn't change. He doesn't respond to the king's forgiveness in a way that he comes and enters into relationship with the king. He doesn't look anything like the king. He's not shaped by the king. And because he doesn't respond to forgiveness, there can't be real reconciliation. We get to the end of the story, and there is no relationship between the king and that first servant. The first servant is cast out, thrown into, he's no longer part of the king's kingdom because he never was reconciled. And so for you, forgiveness is up to you right now. Jesus is calling you to forgive the way that the King forgives you. Reconciliation is out of your hands to a certain extent. That's not not a burden. You can't control how they respond. And I want you just for full transparency, there are people in my life that I have gone to and the best that I know and I've had other people sit down with me, I have tried to be honest and, and gracious and pursue reconciliation with them. And they haven't wanted it. And so just, like, I'm not reconciled with them. I want to be. I'd sit down with them again tomorrow. Usually I want to be. Some days I get really mad at them still. Just, you know, just so I'm being honest with you about that too. Like, don't get that the wrong way. But I can't. I, just, I can't be. We've had the conversation. I can't do anything about it right now. And so I'm not trying to put that burden. Listen, the burden of forgiving's enough. <laughs> Right? Like to really be honest about your heart. To really be honest about, no, I'm going to forgive you the way that the king forgives me. And so, as we get ready to worship, here's the thought that I want us to end with. Every time you think about what someone else owes you because of what they've done, I want you to try to turn from yourself at the center and turn to Jesus at the center and then be honest with yourself about what you owe Jesus. Do you really believe that your sin against Jesus that hung him on the cross is worse than anything that's ever been done to you because he's so valuable, because he's the king? And then that thought's not not gonna be enough probably to motivate you to forgive, by the way. It's too borderline law type thing. But this thought, that king is the only one who never owed anybody anything. He owed you nothing. And he made himself a debtor for your sake. He took your debt as if it were his own. He was scorned and rejected and outcast so that you don't have to be. He paid what you could never pay so that you don't owe anything now. The only one who could have ever come to this world and stood up and said, pay back what you owe me. He could have said that, and it would have been right. And instead he said, I'll pay what I don't owe for you. That's what his kingdom looks like because that's the type of king he is, and that's what he wants his church to look like because we're his people. And so I'm praying that God would breathe life into those type of relationships within our church, that he would breathe that type of grace and mercy and forgiveness into our hearts, and that we would live out the type of mercy that the king is pouring into us. And so as we worship here, thank him Thank Him that that's who He is. Thank Him for that gospel truth. Thank Him that that's what He's done in Jesus. And then also, ask Him to soften your heart that that because of that gospel truth that you would live out this type of gospel relationship. Will you pray with me right now? Father, thank You for the truth of the gospel and for who Jesus is. Father, I pray that it is not something that we will just say with our mouths this morning. But that by your spirit you will drive it into our hearts and you will shape and change who we are and that you will build your church. Oh make us your church and make us your people. And I pray that that true gospel grace not anything goes type grace but the true gospel grace where whatever has happened can be redeemed and restored and made right because of Jesus that that type of gospel grace would explode in our hearts, in our lives, in our relationships, in this church and out of this church into a world that so desperately needs to hear the truth of who you are and how you pursue and how you love and that you would make us the type of church that turns a community upside down, turns a state upside down, turns the world upside down making disciples on this truth of who Jesus is and how he loves and what relationship with him and with his people looks like. Please, Father, do this by your Spirit. Do it on the truth of your gospel. Do it for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.